Good morning. Today I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. That's page 860 in the Bibles in front of you. Do not judge. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs, or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. This is the word of the Lord. The Christ. Well, good morning. So glad that you're here today. My name's Kevin. I get to be one of the pastors of this congregation, and it's my call this morning to unpack for us this teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if you're visiting with us or if you're new, newer around here, um, as a community, we seek to be uh, a people who take Jesus seriously and take his teaching seriously and, and, and take who he is and what he has accomplished in his life and his teaching, his death, his resurrection, seriously and seek to bring our lives in line with his teaching and the reality with, that he unfolds for us. And so if you're considering Jesus, if you're, maybe you're feeling a, maybe you're here kind of searching and saying, I need, there's, there's got to be more to life than this. Or if there's, um, we think that considering Jesus and who he is and what he's taught and what he's accomplished is, um, is best done among a people who take him seriously and who love him. And, um, and who seek to bring our lives in line with his teaching. And that's what we would aspire to. We do so imperfectly, uh, and yet we, we aim to do so seriously. The teaching that Hudson read for us is part of a longer, uh, the longest, actually, uh, teaching of Jesus that we have pre preserved for us. It runs from Matthew chapter 5 to the end of Matthew chapter 7. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus went up to... Um, on a mountain, on a hillside, and called his disciples to him. Those who had, who had made, come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, that he is uh, the, the uh, appointed shepherd savior of God's people. And they, they had confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. And they had seek, been seeking to bring their lives in line with his teaching. And Jesus called them to himself, even while the crowds, those who were contemplating, those who were kind of kicking the tires on him still, who um, could listen in on. And his teaching in this section of scripture is, this is what it means to live in the kingdom of heaven. This is what it means to live in the kingdom of God, where that realm in that community where God is acknowledged as king. This is what life looks like. And he begins that section of teaching with what we, what we know as the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the sons of God. Jesus says, the blessed life, the truly happy life, the fulfilled life, life to the full, life as God intended it, requires a transformation of our hearts. And when, it, when as God by his spirit begins to transform our hearts and, and, and change the things that we love, change the things that we will, change the things that we desire, changes the very motivation structures of our heart, that it works itself out in a changed behavior, in a changed way of life. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is really a description of. And we're entering into a section here that's building to verse 12 of chapter 7, which is known as the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And this uh, section on, on judging one another and splinters and logs and two-by-fours is all building to learning to treat one another as we would want them as other people to treat us. And, it, and it's... Um, Jesus is really narrowing in throughout the sermon, going wide as to the larger community of people, and now he's moving to people who are closer and closer and closer to us. So we're going to work our way through this passage. So if you have a copy of the scripture on your phone or in the book form, there's some in the chairs in front of you. Um, We're just going to work our way through it this morning. I didn't alliterate any points. Uh, I couldn't think of anything cute. Uh, this morning, so we're just going to work our way through this passage. It begins verse 1, do not judge so that you won't be judged. Now that's probably one of the most frequently quoted words of Jesus. It plays really well in our culture. It, 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 that phrase, do not judge, sounds like music to the ears of 21st century Canadians. In our spirit and of accommodation and our accommodating spirit of the spirit of the age, that sounds great. Do not judge. I feel, though, that it's used often as a way to advocate that it, we should never label anything as right or wrong, that we should never label anything as true and false, that, you know, the, the spirit of the age, it says, you know, find your truth and live your truth. Find who, look deep within to find out who you are and then express that out into the world. That one of the most um, sanctified rights of a modern-day Canadian is to the freedom to be and express yourself. And so when Jesus says, do not judge, he's, he, what, he, what is supposed that he's saying is, You should never label anything as right or wrong, true or false. Don't impose your morality on someone else. Find what's right for you and do that. But is that what Jesus is saying? Is is, Is that a livable philosophy of life? I don't think it is. I think it's actually self defeating because. To, to advocate for that rendering of Jesus' teaching would be to say, for you to impose, and for you to tell me that my behavior is wrong, is wrong. That it would be wrong for me to go to you 
and tell you that your behavior is wrong. And the way that you should live, the right thing to do, is to just let be and let live. Do you see how the right and wrong (laughs) judgment kind of emerges? That it's self-defeating. That to to that that you are actually labeled. If I would would point out something is right and wrong, true and false, you are saying it is wrong for me to do that. It's a self-defeating way of living. I don't think that's what Jesus uh, means. Because of verse 5. The very first word of verse 5 is hypocrite. Sounds kind of judgy, doesn't it? Verse 15, be on your guard against false prophets. Jesus sounds like Jesus is making a judgment call on whether this prophet is a true prophet or a false prophet. John 7, 24, Jesus says, don't judge according to outward appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. So elsewhere in scripture, one of our interpretive principles as we try to understand scripture is we take other scriptures and we let scripture interpret itself. And Jesus in John 7 says, judge with righteous judgment. But here he's saying, judge not. Don't judge. So what, what do we make of that? More examples, 1 Corinthians 5, there's a person in, in that Corinthian church, that Corinthian church was a messed up church, a man living in sexual sin, and Paul says, I've made a judgment here. I'm going to make a judgment call here, and you need, this is how you need to deal with this person. Or think of some of the great evils throughout history. Are, is, it, is it wrong for us to label some of those great evils as evil, as wrong? To take the words of Jesus, do not judge, and to to take them and twist them to mean that we can never label anything as right and wrong, true or false, is to misunderstand the the meaning, or or to fail to decipher um, that there's there's at least two different meanings of the word judge. One of the ways that um, that was helpful for me in, uh, in, in, in seeing the difference is this little drawing uh, by, by an author named Sky Jathani. And the drawing is this. It's a picture of apples and oranges. And the def- one definition of the word judge is to discern, to say that apples and oranges are different. Apples are not oranges. That you can make an assessment, you can make an evaluation and a determination, a discernment that apples are not oranges. But another way in which you can, that, that the word judgment can be used is, is to condemn and to say that apples are worthless or apples are less than oranges, are worse than oranges. And so you have these oranges here saying death to apples, God hate apples. It strikes home a little bit to followers of Jesus because we know that there are people who would claim the name of Jesus, who are literally holding up signs that says God hates certain groups of people. As a church, we would stand against that message because God is love. And God loves the world. 
So when Jesus says do not judge, he's talking about definition B, to condemn. He's not saying don't ever make an assessment, don't ever make an evaluation, do not ever discern between right and wrong, true and false. He's saying don't condemn. Don't condemn with an air of superiority. Don't look down upon. Don't pass absolute judgment. This categorical pronouncement of the guilt of another person as though your word is the final word on the matter. Don't look at someone and give the message that they are irredeemably bad and therefore they are to be rejected. Don't condemn. It is not your place to sit and bring condemnation, Jesus says. Do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure that you use. There's a warning, obviously, in these words, right? Don't judge so that you won't be judged. You're going to be judged by the same standard with which you judge. You're going to be measured by the same measure that you use. The question is judged by who? Judged by who? Is, is, is Jesus saying here that if I'm sharply critical of someone else, that I am inviting them to be sharply critical of me? I think he's saying actually even more than that. I think what Jesus is saying is that we ought to abolish a judgmental attitude among us, this condemning superior spirit, because to, to live in that manner, to live with that condemning spirit, that, that self-righteous superiority gives evidence of an unbroken spirit. It gives, to, to live with a condemning spirit puts on display just evidences that you have never come to grips with your own poverty of spirit. The pronouncement you give, i.e. of condemnation, will be given to you by God. Arrogant self-righteousness displays that you are not aware of your own poverty of spirit. And that you have never tasted God's grace and mercy. It's a hard word. And a solemn warning. But it reverberates throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. It is those who are ready to show mercy that will be shown mercy. And it's, again, not that you show mercy and therefore God rewards you and says, oh, now I'll be merciful on you. It's, it's actually the reverse of that. That when you have seen your poverty of spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, when you see that you have no resources to bring, to, to commend yourself before God spiritually, you have, do not have the resources to repair the broken relationship with God, that you're poor, and spiritually speaking, you don't have what it takes to re repair that relationship. And you've been then shown mercy, that God, who is rich in mercy, has forgiven all of your sin, 
has united you with Jesus, has adopted you as a son and daughter, has welcomed you into his family, has given you an inheritance in his kingdom that will never spoil or fade or pass away, when you've tasted that mercy, that you begin to be merciful to others. For if you forgive others their offenses, this is Matthew 6, 14, if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Again, if you have tasted God's forgiveness, it changes your very heartbeat so that your response to others is one of mercy and forgiveness. See, when we taste our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, we appreciate and depend upon God's grace and God's mercy. And we begin to then offer that same grace, that same mercy, that same love, that same forgiveness to others. You see, the way of Jesus is to walk the line of grace and truth. John chapter 1, in John's prologue to his gospel, to his biography of the life of Jesus, said that the word became flesh. Jesus came in the flesh and lived among us full of grace and truth. That Jesus was full of grace and at the very same time full of truth. He did not hold back. Hypocrite! Whitewashed tomb! You're broken. You're sinful. He didn't hold back. He was full of truth, but so full of grace. He welcomed anyone and everyone. And to a woman caught in adultery, whom the the men in the room were ready to stone, he said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all walked away. And he says to her, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Full of grace, full of truth. Full of mercy, full of justice. Now most of us have a tendency, we lean one way or the other. We're, we're kind of, we're grace people or we're truth people. Right? Some of us are, are, are truth people. We lean, like, that's our tendency. We go there first. We make terrible counselors. Right? Someone comes to you for some counsel and you're like, here's the truth. Go, go live it. Sort it out. Stop doing that. Stop thinking that. We need a little more grace and truth. Some are so, though, full of grace that you'll never confront anyone. You'll never say anything's wrong. You'll never say that anything's false. Never say that you, you'll, you, and, you, and all you have is grace, but you, you've missed out on truth. You see, to miss one or the other is to miss both, is to miss love. Because to walk in the way of Jesus is to walk in the way of grace and truth. So we as a church, as a community of disciples, need to resist moral apathy. And we have to resist that condemning spirit. Resisting and rejecting moral apathy and a condemning spirit. Walking full of grace and truth. So then Jesus paints a picture of just how ridiculous you are when you live with a condemning spirit. Verse 3, 
Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye, the two-by-four sticking out of your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Now, I'll point out first, he's talking about, he's using family language here, right? Your brother or sister. He's talking about the community of disciples. Jesus isn't here, is not talking about going and pointing out the sin and people with, who are who, in, their, in their lives who haven't yet joined the community of disciples, who haven't yet confessed Jesus as Lord. And so if, if that's you, I know, and I love the fact that our church always has folks who are just kind of still exploring faith in Jesus, exploring who he is and his teaching. If that's you today, we're, again, we just love the fact that you're here and would love to walk with you to explore the claims of Jesus and his truth and grace and the good news that he offers us and has brought to us. But, but I... If that's you, don't hear this morning about us saying, like, hey, you've got to get serious about your sin. Actually, we say, we want you to get serious about Jesus. We would love for you to come to faith in him and make a commitment to him. This is, this is a family. This is in the context of the family and the community of disciples. And in the community of disciples, we do help one another take the specks, the splinters out of one another's eye. Right? That, that's clear. Here in the text, take the, take the two by four out of your own eye and then you'll be able to help one another. Take the, the specks out of each other's eyes. He does want us to take, help one another deal with sin issues in our life. Do, to deal with those attitudes and actions, those beliefs and behaviors those, um, that, that are not in line with God's will for us, that are not in line with, with the heart of the Father. Those things that are still opposed to the, the kingship of Jesus in our life. He wants us to help one another deal with those things. You know, you know, some of you know the passage in Matthew chapter 18. If your brother has sinned against you, go to him and, and help deal with one another. Deal with these things. So he does want us to help deal with the specks that are in each other's eye. But he says, you better first take the two by four out of your own eye. We... Uh, we walk around with a two-by-four in our eye when we focus only on the public sins of others and are either oblivious to or neglectful of the heart internal sins of ourselves. When we focus on public sins of other people while we ignore, or, be, or even worse, probably oblivious at least more dangerously, oblivious to our own internal sin. We're walking around with a two-by-four. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. If when we judged others, our real motive was to destroy evil, we should look for, it, for evil where it's certain to be found, and that's in our own hearts. But if we're on the lookout for evil in others, our real motive is obviously to justify Ourselves. He wrote that in his great little book, The Cost of Discipleship. If you're unwilling to deal with your own stuff, but really eager to deal with other people's stuff, 
you're walking around with a two-by-four in your eye. We walk around with a two-by-four in our eye when we forget the importance of attitude. You see, being right doesn't excuse being a jerk. The Apostle Paul writes that the, the people of God ought to be not quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Kind to who? To everyone. Kind. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so if you want someone to be repent, ask how kind are you being to them? You see, the, the two-by-four lifestyle is really the opposite of the 1 Corinthians 13 love lifestyle, right? It's really just the opposite. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and of all knowledge, I have faith that I can even move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Love is patient, kind, doesn't envy, it's not boastful, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not irritable. The two-by-four life is just the opposite. It's, it's, it's rude, it's unkind. It's envious and jealous. It's boastful, it's arrogant. It's self-justifying. See, with this illustration, Jesus isn't saying, um, so don't go and talk to your brother or your sister about the little speck in their eye when you've got a really, uh, you know, the little sin in their life when you have a really big sin in your life. That's actually not what he's saying. He, what he is saying is that the condemning spirit is the plank that's in your eye. The judgmental, condemning, self-righteous, arrogant spirit is the plank that you have to deal with before you can start talking about other people's specs. And then they can help you with your specs. But when you are living the two-by-four life, when you're living the, the, the condemning, arrogant, self-justifying, self-righteous life, that is the plank. You see, we help each other remove the specks only when we do so from a humble and self-examined life that has removed that plank of self-righteous judgment. And so ask, how's your my attitude? Am I proud? And judgmental, or am I loving and gentle? Doug, can you put up um, Galatians 6, 1 and 2? Brothers and sisters, if someone's overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. But watching out for yourselves so that you won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. See, the gentleness, the humble, the self-examined life. It's only when we exhibit the character of Christ that we help one another take out splinters. You see, we help one another take out the splinters in our eyes with tears in our own eyes, not with a smirk on our face. How do you feel? Here's a, here's a self-examination question. How do you feel when you hear something negative about someone you're jealous of? 
someone you're jealous of, and you hear something negative about them, does it self-justify? Does it give you a little smirk? <laughs> I thought so. It's the two-by-four life. So, we cannot give in to moral apathy and surrender the practice of discernment. We must hold one another accountable and responsible, but we must do so without attacking their worth, without marking them as rejects. But it's super complicated. It's super tricky, right? Because it it seems more and more so than ever, any correction now is seen as an attack on my person. You know, we're, we're desperately seeking approval, and any negative feedback is therefore hateful and is, and is received as a condemnation as me as a people, as a person. You may have heard the, the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin. You know, love the sinner, hate the sin. I love how Preston Sprinkle... Um, reframes that instead of love the sinner and hate the sin let's love the sinner hate our own sin and invite fellow sinners to walk with us arm in arm toward the only one who knew no sin i love how that that reframing let's deal with our own sin let's hate our own sin yeah we we hate what sin does in, in the lives of people that we love because it's destroying them. Sin is self-destructive. It's destroying. So in verse 6, this is the easy verse. Uh, Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they'll trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Like, what? (laughs) Right? Anyone say, like, how does that fit? As I, as I prepare sermons, the first thing I do is I write out the passage, and then I start asking questions, and the very first question this week was, what in the world does verse 6 mean? Like, what in the world, Jesus? Like, what are you, what are you saying here? Um, and what does that have to do with the, this whole judgmental and logs and splinters? I'll be honest, most commentators say... Well, this is the balance to the judgmental spirit. You also must be discerning about who you share the gospel with. Don't be really careful about sharing the gospel with those whose only intent is mockery and ridicule. I'll be honest, that's, that's actually the most common interpretation of that passage. And I can't think of a more antithetical to the gospel way of reading that text. I, I, I actually can't, I can't wrap my head around how that actually squares with the way of Jesus. To say, well, some people, they're not really worthy of the gospel. Who's worthy of the gospel? None of us are. That's the good news, that anyone can get in on this. We all are born hostile to God, hostile to the good news of Jesus. We all need regeneration. We all need a new birth by the Spirit of God. We all need our eyes open. We all need the grace and mercy of God in our lives, and none of us were worthy of it. It just feels so antithetical to the very Spirit of Christ and the very message of verses 1 to 5. So, you say, all right, smarty pants, 
What do you think it means then? Well, I'll agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones and Dallas Willard in their interpretation of this passage. Casting pearls before pigs. Think about that for a second. Pearls, you and I, probably you more so than me, can appreciate them as valuable and beautiful. Something to be admired, something to be treasured, something to be appreciated. But a pig, do they have any usefulness with pearls? No, they, they, a, per, a pig is basically, what can I eat and what can I drink? That's what they're interested in. Can they eat pearls? No, they're not edible. They're not digestible. It's not what they need, and it's not what they would appreciate. So I think what Jesus is saying is treat people as individuals. Get to know them. Learn their story. And discern how the gospel intersects with where they are at right now. So that when you share precious truths with them, it will sound like precious truths to them. And it will sound like something they can digest. And something that will help them grow. So, so not mechanical witness where you have an ABC, this is the gospel of Jesus, one, two, three, here's the bridge, let me draw it for you. Nothing against that, it works for some people, but it doesn't work for everyone. Treat people as individuals and give them something they can digest. And there are truths that as a follower of Jesus are precious to me. That I love and, and, and think it shows something so beautiful about who God is. But will sound offensive in the air of someone who's in the ears of someone who's not yet um, become a follower of Jesus. And so I don't have to cast those pearls before those people. And again, it's not, we resist that air of superiority and say, you're a pig and I'm a human. Like, no, that's not, let's not take the metaphor further than what Jesus intends. I think what he's saying is get to know someone's story. Because the message of Jesus ought to sound like good news to everyone. So become so acquainted with the good news of who Jesus is and what he's all accomplished and the wisdom of his teaching and the goodness of his life and the, and the power of his resurrection and the, the coming of his kingdom. Become so acquainted with that that as you become acquainted with your neighbor and you know their story and you know what's, what's, what, what... Because I believe, like Blaise Pascal, that philosopher and mathematician, that every one of us has this God-shaped void. That we, that we have this, that with, when, we're, when we're not, 
reconciled with God, there is some, we know something's missing and only God can fill it. And that's going to show up in all of our lives. There's an itch that we just can't scratch. And it's the good news of Jesus that ultimately fulfills that. But we do so without superiority because the gospel is humbling to us. You know, I am so broken and sinful that it took the death of God's son, that God had to send his son to die for me in order to save me. And he had to do it all. I couldn't contribute anything. And so the gospel humbles us, but it also assures us, right, that, that he was glad to do it. He loves us. It was out of love that he sent his son. It was out of love. And so the gospel strips us of all superiority because we haven't contributed anything to it. But it fills us with assurance that, that I'm deeply loved by the God who made me. And the gospel then strips us of, of that spirit of condemnation. Because our judgment is not final judgment. See, an example of this would be 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul, it's sometimes referred to terribly, and I hate that people do that as a clobber passage. But Paul says, make no mistake, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Liars, those who commit sexual immorality, the greedy people, none of them. Thieves, they're not going to inherit God's kingdom. And you're like, wow, that's judgmental. He says, but such were some of you. But you were washed, you were cleansed, you were reconciled to God, and he did the miracle of bringing you into his kingdom. Any greedy? Any sexually immoral? And such were some of you. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace and mercy and so it is not our place to put them there, to condemn them as beyond his reach, beyond the reach of his grace and his mercy. Maybe you felt condemned by someone. Maybe you're, you read this passage of Jesus teaching today and you're like, oh, yes, I've been judged and condemned. I've been written off. Romans chapter 8 says, In Christ, there is no condemnation. None whatsoever. That if you will come to Jesus, if you'll be united to him, there is no, none, condemnation for you. It's done away with. He was condemned so that you and I would never have to be. Judgment was passed on him so that it would never be passed on us. He took our judgment day and took it from the future and put it in the past. That judgment has already been taken for us. And then he goes on in verse 34 of Romans 8, he says, who is the one who condemns? It is Christ Jesus who died and even more was raised. Do you feel condemned by someone what is that compared to the no condemnation in Christ Jesus? Again, that humbles, but it affirms. 
And so wherever you're at this morning, hear that message of Jesus. And let that message then turn you into a person who's humble and gentle and filled with truth. That we can help one another with the specks in our own eyes. But without that spirit of condemnation. Because we've been humbled by the gospel, but we've been assured enough to go to our brothers and sisters and help. So would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news of Jesus that's even embedded right in this passage. And we ask, Father, that we would be a people, that we, you would make us increasingly into a community that is not a place of judgment, of condemnation. But this is, this is a community where it's okay to not be okay. It's an okay place to struggle. It's a place of welcome and embrace where, yes, we will hear the truth, but we will hear it in grace and in mercy. And so, Father, you've said that the name of Jesus is the name that is above every other name. It is your will that we would come to Jesus to experience the no condemnation. It's your will, Father, that we would worship your Son because he has taken all the condemnation and judgment that, that we deserved rightfully. And you've taken it into your very self so that we would never have to experience it. And so, Father, if we don't have to experience it, save us from being the kind of people who give it to others, who would give condemnation and judgment to others. And so transform us, humble us, assure us of your good news as we continue in worship. In Jesus' good name, amen. Would you stand with us if you're able?